Israel was so caught up in the sense that, hey, we're making peace with all our Arab neighbors. Okay, not everybody, but now maybe with Saudis too. But there was this great sense of how such optimism, such optimism. And all that was shattered on October 7th. What can we learn from last year in the epicenter? And can we glean anything from that as we look forward to 2024? Considering everything that Israel has gone through in the last few months, can we have hope? Hi, and welcome to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund. Today, we present Joel's New Year's message, Hope for 2024, while looking back at 2023. Well, thank you, Carl, so much. Um, I think this is an important topic, and I'm glad that you've raised it. Uh, Looking back at 2023, what were some of the highlights here in Israel and in the region? Uh, It's been a big year, a difficult year. We'll talk about that in a moment. But also looking ahead, what might 2024 hold? Uh, None of us have a crystal ball, and we don't believe in astrology people. We're not, you know, crystal ball people. We're not, uh, and, you know, we don't have a clear sense of even what scriptures would say prophetically. Um, I don't have any clear direction that this is going to happen. Such and such is going to happen in 2024, but I'll tell you sort of some of the trend lines that I'm seeing. And um, hopefully that will be helpful to you as we think about how to pray and how to go into 2024. But wow. Let's just start with, with wow, or we could say it backwards. Wow, this has been you know the hardest year I think of my life, Lynn's. We've never been through what we've been through. We'll get to the war in a moment. But let's start with uh, if you go back earlier in the year, one of the biggest developments uh, that comes to mind was when all Israel news broke the story in March that uh, two members of Knesset, Israel's parliament, uh, two ultra orthodox Jewish members of of Israel's parliament, parliament had introduced a bill to ban sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with anybody. And if you violated the law, if it passed, then you would go to prison for a year. If you talked about Jesus with somebody under 18, you'd go to prison for two years. That was the big story of March. Uh, And, uh, you know, just off the top of my head, I don't recall anything quite as dramatic in the couple months prior. It seemed like, you know, 2023 started with, okay, so, you know, cooking along, we're serving the Lord, we're helping the Joshua Fund, we're we're doing stories about the things that are going on here in Israel. Of course, the judicial reform was a big story. Uh, the political uh, tumult was going on. But then came March and that anti-gospel bill. And Israel, all Israel News broke that story, and the story went viral. Uh, we not only explained on allisrael.com what the problem was, what the bill was about, but we actually published the bill in Hebrew and in English. So people could really read it and not just think, oh, the, Joel and his team, they don't know what they're talking about. It's all, they're, you know, it's all overblown. It's all fake news. No, it wasn't fake news. And we showed the bill. And whoa, wow, that story went viral. I mean, literally, uh, it was, it got picked up by American media outlets, Israeli media outlets, and it created a, a, a little a mini firestorm where both Christians and Jews were sort of deluging the prime minister's office here in Israel and the foreign minister's office here in Israel and embassies, Israeli embassies around the world with what is going on? Why are you guys trying to ban Christians from talking about what they believe? Uh, you know, Jesus being Jewish, Jesus being Israeli. Look, it's, it's culturally super sensitive here about talking about your faith in Jesus. 
or trying to help somebody say, hey, you, you should follow Jesus and he is the Messiah. So we get it sensitive, but it is a democracy. There is freedom of speech here. And that was going to crush freedom of speech and religious freedom specifically for, for Christians. Now, the, the bill uh, generally said, you know, it's basically about anybody trying to talk to somebody else to convince them to follow their faith rather than the person's faith. But the text made it very clear that this was really specifically about Jesus and about the gospel, about Christians. So anyway, uh, we broke the story on a Sunday. By Wednesday afternoon, I think it was like 4.43 or something like that, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu issued a statement saying he would never allow a bill that would harm Christians to pass. And then the uh, one of the authors of the bill uh, very quickly thereafter uh, withdrew the bill and said that they wouldn't pursue it. So that was a huge victory. It came very, very quickly. Uh, we at All Israel News, the Joshua Fund, we don't take any credit for that. We're just alert to what's happening and sort of watchmen on the wall. And we got the word out. And uh, and uh, But it was God himself and the prayers of you all and so many other Christians around the world who prayed, but also many of you spoke up. We, you know, the Joshua Fund and All Israel News, we actually didn't ask people to, you know, phone in. We didn't have a call to action. We just wanted people to be aware of. We did, well, the call to action was to pray, but we weren't trying to be a lobbyist. Uh, we didn't tell people to do that. People did it anyway. And so that was a huge uh, victory. Um, God really did something very, very special. And we were very encouraged that in our small way, we could be helpful uh, to the body of believers here, but also worldwide. And honestly, helpful to Israel. It would not have been helpful with every other challenge Israel faces in life to have 2 billion Christians mad at, at Israel. So um, I'm grateful to Prime Minister Netanyahu for, you know, for putting the, the kibosh, as it were, on that bill. And, um, and that was encouraging. Anyway, we, we, uh, we kind of continue through the year. The, the, the other, you know, the big story, as I mentioned, the, the big national story that was consistent was this huge debate over judicial reform, how to fix the legal system. There are some serious problems here. There are changes that are needed. There are reforms that are needed. Uh, but Israelis felt that the Netanyahu administration and his, their team was just going way too far, way too fast without national buy-in. It created hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Israelis turning out on the streets to protest. And it really was dividing the society pretty deeply. And those were two of the biggest stories of the year. And then, of course, October 7th. Prior to October 7th, one of the things that seemed encouraging was that Israel was in sensitive but increasingly encouraging talks with the Saudis about making peace. Uh, you may recall that uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman went on a Fox News interview, first interview he'd done with American television, and the first he'd done in English uh, in a long time, first ever, first ever in English, but the first interview with a Western media outlet in a couple of years. And he said he was very encouraged and he believed that peace was, was, was rapidly coming between Israel and the Saudis. So that was so encouraging. But then came October 7th. October 7th was uh, the invasion of southern Israel by Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip into Israeli communities, farm and agricultural communities right along that border with the Gaza Strip. Hamas terrorists, I believe, were demon-possessed. When you read about the butchery, the savagery, the attacks, what was done to these Jewish people, Israeli people, I mean, it would be bad enough. It would be bad enough just to come and shoot these people or take them hostages. But the rapes, the torture, the beheadings, the burning people alive, uh, putting a, a baby in an oven, 
I don't want to go into more detail than that right now, but I just say it was this was demon possessed, and um, it caught Israel completely off guard. Israel was so caught up in the sense that hey, we're making peace with all our Arab neighbors. Okay, not everybody, but now maybe with Saudis too. That there was this great sense of wow, such optimism, such optimism, and all of that was shattered on October seventh. And then, of course, the, the war has erupted since then, and now we're October, November. December, we're three months in, and I don't think there's a real end in sight. And now God can change things, but as we record this, as we end 2023 and head into 2024, I believe the war is going to go on for some time. Why do I say this? I say this because Israel is definitely winning the fight against Hamas uh, in Gaza. But, and yes, is it is it painful? Yes. Is it bitter? Is it brutal? Yes. Yes, it's it's been terrible. But Israel is winning. You're probably not hearing that in the mainstream media much, but or maybe at all. But it's true. Israel is definitely winning. And, and Israeli officials at, at very high levels tell me they believe that it's possible that they could be – that they could have fully or significantly vanquished the Hamas terror leadership and infrastructure in the Gaza Strip by middle or end of January, perhaps. Maybe that's optimistic. Maybe it's going to take a little longer. Maybe it's uh, – Maybe they could do it even sooner, but but that's what they're saying. Uh, that's, they were saying we started reporting it on all initial news. Now it's getting said publicly. So that means we we still have a, maybe a month or so of fighting in the south. Now that was for major operations. There might still be other efforts, uh, military efforts and operations, smaller ones that have to happen to kind of the cleanup process just to make sure there's literally no terrorists and weapons in Gaza at all. That's a difficult thing to do. That could take another month or more. But the major military operations could be done by the end of January 2024. But what we've been reporting, what people are telling me, and now it is public, uh, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, and our um, Israel's uh, national security advisor, Sahi Hanegbi, are now saying publicly what we've been reporting from private sources or uh, quieter sources, uh, but they're going public. And what are they saying? They're saying the war is not going to be over just because we win in Gaza. And of course, there's a whole... We'll get in a moment to what is the future of Gaza in the post-Hamas world, okay? We'll get to that in a moment. That's a big question for 2024 and something we really need to be praying about and discussing, and we will on the Inside the Epicenter uh, podcast and, of course, at All Israel News and on the Rosenberg Report and so forth, and on All Arab News, of course. But I want to say that what Israeli leaders are saying is once we win in Gaza, we're going to pivot and our major military operations are going to focus on the north. You know, because we've been telling you that that Hezbollah, the terrorist organization in in Lebanon that's funded, armed, trained, directed by Iran's regime, they have been fighting with Israel in the north along that Israeli-Lebanon border almost from October 7th, not quite. And it's it's gotten more and more intense as we approach the end of 2023. everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... 
Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Our verse of the day today is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Our prayer requests today are, pray that for the needy, those in pain, those ravaged by war, and those discouraged in Israel, the Middle East, and around the world, God will comfort and strengthen them. Second, pray that God comforts Israel and her people at this time and delivers the rest of the hostages held captive. Israeli officials are now saying in 2024, they're going to basically invade southern Lebanon. Why are they going to do that? Because in 2006 was the last big Lebanon war. It was called the second Lebanon war. The first one had been back in the 1980s. But in 2006, there was for 34 days, a big war, 4,000 missiles from Hezbollah, lots of fighting, both directions. It ended with a ceasefire in 2006. And the UN Security Council passed a resolution, which was Resolution 1701. Okay. What did 1701 say? Well, it said a lot of things. uh, But one of the main things was, aside from the ceasefire, that Hezbollah, this terrorist force, was not allowed to be in southern Lebanon along the northern border with Israel. And uh, Hezbollah could not have any weapons in that southern tier. And there was a specific place that sort of marked what the resolution 1701 said specifically was a buffer zone, that Israel needs a buffer zone where there's no Hezbollah forces, no weapons between Israel's official legal northern border and the Latani River. Okay, the Latani River is a east-west river in southern Lebanon. It's about 30 kilometers or so, maybe 12 or 15 miles north of Israel's northern border, okay? And that was the point of demarcation in this UN Security Council Resolution 1701, that Hezbollah terrorists and their weapons cannot be, cannot be south of the Latani River. That would give a 30-kilometer buffer zone between Israel and the bad guys. What happened? Well, Hezbollah violated that, and they've been violating it consistently for whatever it's been, 2006, so that's uh, 17 uh, years. The UN didn't enforce any of it, right? So it's all just talk, 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 talk. But it is the legal document from the UN. So Israel is saying, listen, those are the rules. So we're going to invade southern Lebanon and we're going to destroy all Hezbollah forces and destroy all weapons and terror tunnels and so forth between our Israel's northern border, our legal official border, and the Latani River. We're going to clear that out. And we're going to create the very buffer zone that the UN said they wanted, but didn't enforce. Now, that, I think, is something that every Israeli wants. There's total unity on at least doing that. Okay, Many Israelis want to do much more than that. They want to completely vanquish Hezbollah. But Hezbollah has 150,000 missiles pointed at Israel. So the process of invading and clearing out that buffer zone, creating that buffer zone to be real so that Israelis who live in the north don't have to fear every single moment of every single day that they're going to get invaded and slaughtered and butchered 
by Hezbollah, the way Israelis living in the south along the Gaza border were slaughtered and butchered by Hamas. Okay, So that's the Israeli intention, the government's intention. But by doing that, it could trigger the 150,000 missiles inbound, which would make it the worst war in the history of Israel. And it could go on for months, and the casualties could be enormously high on both sides. So that's a real risk. But Israel doesn't see any other way. Uh, now, can I tell you what would be the structure? How how would we would, would Israel occupy that southern tier right up to the Latani border? I don't know. Nobody said that yet. Would some foreign military force? Would the UN? Uh, no Israeli thinks it's a good idea to trust the UN again. But anyway, those are some of the issues that as we go into 2024. And then there, of course, is Iran. The Iranian regime is at 84% enrichment of uranium. You only have to get to between 90 and 93% for Iran to be able to build fully operational nuclear warheads. So Israel cannot allow uh, Iran to go from 84 to 90 to 91, 92, 93. Can't. So the question that everyone's sort of quietly asking each other is, is Israel preparing a preemptive strike, a massive strike against Iran's nuclear facilities, against their, maybe their missile facilities, maybe even against their defense ministry and other, and just decimate and neutralize Iran's nuclear threat to Israel and to the region. Many people think that's what we should be doing, but everybody here knows if that happens, then Iran is almost certainly going to order Hezbollah to fire its 150,000 missiles. So we have bad cards in our hand, but most Israelis feel very unified, like, hey, well, what other choice do we have? We cannot ever allow what happened on October 7th to happen again. So we're going to have to take action. But what does the United States do? What does the UN do? What do the Europeans do? What do the Russians do? Does the United States, under the Biden administration, turn off the flow of weapons and condemn us and isolate us? Prime Minister Netanyahu and his and his and the other leaders around him are saying, look, we have to fight and defend ourselves no matter what the world says. But obviously, if the United States is not resupplying weapons and ammunition, it gets very difficult for Israel to go too much further. So there's a lot of questions on the Iran front, on the Lebanon front. But let's go back for a moment to Gaza. Obviously, we can't cover everything in this looking back, looking ahead edition of the ins- of Inside the Epicenter. But these are important things for you to be aware of. And I want to set the table so you understand some of these pieces. And then we're going to, and we're going to, I'm just going to say one more thing about sort of what does Gaza look like in the post-Hamas world? And then I also want to make a point about what's the future spiritually of the Palestinian people. So these two quick points. The, the first point is what does Gaza look like uh, once Hamas has been vanquished? I don't think there's a real issue about whether Hamas is going to be vanquished. I think it's a matter of when. But when that happens, then what? Israel's government has been pretty tight-lipped about it, right? Because they, I think there's a lot of debate actually going on. Um, President Biden has said, well, the Palestinian Authority, the government that's in the West Bank, they should be in charge of Gaza, and that should lead to a two-state solution. The Palestinian Authority would be in charge of the West Bank and Gaza, and Israel would make peace with them. Well, to many people, that seems like a good idea. But to the Israeli government and to the nation of Israel, that does not sound like a good idea. Why? Very quickly, because the Palestinian Authority was in charge of Gaza in 2005. And then there were elections and Hamas, or I'm sorry, it was 2005, 2006. Then there were elections and Hamas won and the Palestinian Authority lost. And 
Hamas kicked out the Palestinian Authority out of Gaza and created it, the Gaza Strip into a terror base camp. So the PA, the Palestinian Authority, has failed miserably at leading and governing the Gaza Strip. It has shown no capacity for that. And that's what led to the problem we're in in the first place. Okay, So that's one problem. President Biden is convinced. And I'm not trying to make a partisan point here. I'm just giving you the facts of where we are. Right? I'm not saying you should vote for him or Trump or DeSantis or whomever else. I'm just saying that this is what's happening. What Biden wants is a two-state solution and the Palestinian Authority running the West Bank and Gaza. And Israelis say that's crazy. The Palestinian Authority is, you know, surrendered to Hamas 17 years ago, and they're they're the problem. That's what that that's what happened, right? It's sort of like saying, oh, we need a ceasefire. Oh, you need a ceasefire. There was a ceasefire on October 6th, and Hamas was the one that broke it and slaughtered all our people. So how does a ceasefire help? It doesn't. It's just his talk. And it might sound good to some people, but it, when you think it through, it's just not helpful. But there's another reason that Israeli leaders and the Israeli people mostly are saying, no, we're not going to put the Palestinian Authority in charge of Gaza. Because the leader of the Palestinian Authority is Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, his name is, uh, he also has a nickname or sort of, uh, he's also known by this term Abu Mazen, the father of Mazen. So I'll, I'll use the term Abu Mazen, but it's the same as, it's the same name. It means the same thing as Mahmoud Abbas. Abu Mazen is in charge of the Palestinian Authority. He's in charge of the West Bank. He lost Gaza and now he's running the West Bank. But a poll literally came out yesterday before, as we're, as we're taping this, that shows that 89% of Palestinians in the West Bank think that Abu Mazen is a horrible leader and that he should resign immediately. Okay. So they say he's corrupt. He's not a useful leader. He's serving the 18th year of his four-year term. So Abu Mazen has no legitimacy among his own people. Forget what Israelis think of him, which is not much, but Palestinians don't like him. They hate him. But Abu Mazen doesn't want to hold elections. Why does he not want to hold elections? Because the polls show that Hamas would win in the West Bank. So then you would have a two-state solution and Hamas would be in charge. And the polls have actually shown that Hamas has gained popularity in the West Bank and Gaza since October 7th. Palestinians are happy about this. 72% of Palestinians in this poll, taken by a Palestinian trusted survey firm, it's not an Israeli firm or American polling firm. This is Palestinians polling themselves 72% support the violence that Hamas used against Israel on October 7th. So there's no way Israel's going to offer a two-state solution in an environment where one side is you know, currently at the moment controlled by Hamas and, and even when they're destroyed, then put the Palestinian Authority in charge, which has no legitimacy, and Hamas is more popular. So if there's ever an election, Hamas would then be again in charge of the West Bank and Gaza. So... These are very, very difficult issues. Very, very difficult. There is no clear, obvious way forward. So that turns us to our last point. And I won't take much time on it now, but we definitely need to look at it. And that is spiritually, what is God doing? I mean, he sovereignly, God is allowing Satan, the thief, to rob, kill, and destroy. Gaza is being totally destroyed. So it obviously has to be rebuilt. And, there, and somebody has to govern it. Israel doesn't want to occupy it. Egypt doesn't want it. We can't put Hamas back in charge. We can't put the Palestinian Authority back in charge. So so who and how? But spiritually, here's my hope. Here's my hope as we go into 2024. My hope is that God is letting Satan rob, kill, and destroy the people of the Gaza Strip 
in order to shatter the view of Palestinians in Gaza that radical Islamism really is the answer, that Hamas really is their savior and their future. At the moment, the polls show that this is that, that they do think so. But I take polls in Gaza with a grain of salt. Most people don't have electricity. Most people don't. And what are they? How do they know that they're really getting polled by an independent polling firm and not a Hamas operative that's checking to see if they're supportive of Hamas or not? So I would discount for the moment the polls regarding what Palestinians in Gaza think. What Palestinians in the West Bank think, I think, is very troubling. But spiritually, uh, when we saw ISIS sweep across Syria and Iraq, we saw a lot of Muslims say, well, if ISIS is what real Islam is, I'm out. Many of them left Islam, and some of them became atheists, some of them became agnostics, and some of them became followers of Jesus Christ. We've seen that in Iran, right? The Iranian regime is so horrible that at least a million, maybe several million Iranian Shia Muslims have left Islam and said, forget it. If that regime in Tehran is really what I'm supposed to be, I don't want that. And they're searching. They're searching. for They're, they're spiritual people. They're religious people. But, but they're like, no, I'm, that is not true. I reject Islam. And they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They're watching gospel programming on satellite television. They're listening to it on trans world radio. They're they're reading about it when they can on the internet, and they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ in large numbers. This is my prayer. I, I feel horrible, horrible that Gaza is being decimated like this, but it is Hamas's fault. And unfortunately, the people of Gaza did vote for them, but I still have compassion on them. I'm praying for my neighbors. I'm praying for my enemies, and I'm hoping that the whole concept of radical Islamism is in the process of being shattered. In Gaza, And if that's the case, we could see the greatest harvest of Palestinians in Gaza coming to faith in Jesus Christ in the years ahead. Wouldn't that be amazing? So that's one of my prayers. So anyway, that's a little bit of the look back, a little bit of the look forward. And um, I would just say that uh, it's going to be a hard year, certainly the first quarter, first half of the year, I think it's going to be very, very hard. And I, I hope that with all the trauma that's going on here in Israel, even though I, I hate to see it, but I pray that God would use it, what man plans for evil, that God would use for good, and that Jews would be open to considering, how do I know how to find peace in this world? How do I know how to find eternal life in the life to come? Maybe religious Judaism isn't the answer. Maybe the Messiah really is Jesus. That's what I pray. And um, I know I'll get a lot of pushback and people will be upset with me about that, but okay. All the apostles uh, got pushed back, even persecution. We still have to say it. It's true. It's true. We're saying this out of love. People don't have to believe it, but they have to hear it. How can someone say yes to a, a message they haven't even heard? So it has to be said. And we need to strengthen the believers here, Jewish and Palestinian believers, so that they can be the hands and feet of Jesus. They can be the light in the darkness. They can be the, the voice of truth and hope. It is good news after all. It's the gospel. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it for Jews, Palestinians, or anyone else. So thank you guys so much um, for ending this year, beginning 2024 with this uh, Inside the Epicenter podcast. Um, continue to pray for all of our team, the staff, the board, all of us here on the ground here in Israel. Um, we need wisdom and we need protection and we need guidance and, uh, and God's mercy and favor. Please continue to give to the Joshua Fund. Grateful for all this year-end giving that's been so helpful and it's giving us the ability to move in real time to provide food, 
medicine, water, clothing to Jews and Palestinians who are desperately in need, as well as strengthen the local believers to, again, fulfill the Great Commission and be a loving witness and a loving neighbor to our people here. So appreciate as you continue to, to, to give in uh, 2024. Uh, I know you've got a huge election going on in the United States. Um, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, there are other challenges worldwide, but um, for, this is the report from Jerusalem right now as we end 23 and head into 24. And I may God bless you and your family. And uh, we're here to continue serving you and educating you and mobilizing you, hopefully, uh, here at uh, the Joshua Fund uh, and with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. So thank you so much uh, for watching. And I'll just close with this scripture, um, uh, repeating what I uh, shared uh, in the previous podcast about Christmas, but Isaiah chapter 9, uh, just reminding ourselves that there was a time when the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah that the people here in Israel, especially in the north and Galilee, were going to be people who walk in darkness, but they will see a great light. And as we face a huge war uh, in the north, in the Galilee area, Israel and Lebanon, Israel and Hezbollah, the people in Israel, all over Israel, but particularly in the north, they need to see the light of Jesus. And um, a child was born to us 2,000 years ago. A son was given to us 2,000 years ago. Uh, his name is the Wonderful Counselor. He is the Mighty God. He is one with the Eternal Father. He is the Prince of Peace. And he is the Messiah that we waited for and that we desperately need and who's coming back again. So for me and Lynn and our team here, this is what we're focused on, that being lights in this great darkness. Uh, this is definitely Israel's darkest hour. But that means it's the opportunity of a lifetime for the followers of Jesus uh, to be the light of the world in this place. And may people be drawn to the light from Jerusalem. I'm Joel Rosenberg. Carl, uh, would you finish the show? Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Joel's New Year message, Hope for 2024. While looking back at 2023, if you have found this podcast really valuable, please get in touch with us. Let us know who you are. Are you someone who is searching for Jesus? Here's where you can find it. Do you want to talk about something else on this show? Do you have a question you wish Joel to answer? Send any comments you may have to podcast at joshuafund.net. Your feedback is incredibly valuable to us as we develop this podcast. As always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg and the Joshua Fund Ministry team, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more.